This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 20th of November 2015, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its second annual conference entitled Protection Elsewhere But Where? National, Regional and Global Perspectives on Refugee Law. Well, we might start our final session. And uh, in the interests of, of ensuring we've got enough time for discussion, uh, let's, let's commence our final session for this afternoon, uh, which is a panel uh, including perspectives from the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, as we were planning this conference and we knew that uh, it would touch upon issues of regional cooperation, we felt it was really important for us to make sure that we had... Um, a perspective from key countries within Asia uh, reflected here and um, so we're really excited to have uh, these eminent speakers with us today to to share perspectives from from the region. Uh, to my left is Rafendi Jamin. He is the Indonesian representative for the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights and was previously the chair of that Intergovernmental Commission. He's the executive director of the Human Rights Working Group, which is a coalition of Indonesian NGOs for international human rights advocacy, which is based in Jakarta. He received his master's degree in development studies from the Institute of Social Studies in The Hague. And since 1992, he has worked as a lobbyist and an advocate on human rights, democracy and humanitarian issues in Indonesia, working both with intergovernmental bodies and with uh, UN human rights mechanisms. And he specialises and trains in human rights and democracy in Indonesia. And we're very pleased to have him with us. Uh, directly to my right is Deepa Nambia, who is the country director of Asylum Access Malaysia. And that's an organisation that provides free legal advice and representation to refugees and asylum seekers in Malaysia. Uh, in that role, she works very closely with UNHCR and other members of civil society uh, to develop policies and practices that promote fair access to refugee status determination procedures and uh, to protection. Uh, as a representative of the Migration Working Group, she briefed members of the Malaysian Parliament uh, from the opposition party on Malaysia's obligations under domestic and international laws uh, in relation to rescue operations, something that we've been discussing uh, in some detail today. And she currently uh, undertakes research on nationality and uh, citizenship laws in Malaysia as they relate to stateless Rohingya. Uh, she has uh, a Bachelor of Law from the University of London and LLM in international law and human rights law from Columbia Law School, where she was a Fulbright scholar. And uh, at the end of the table, we have Professor Supang Chantanawach, uh, who is Professor of Sociology at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok. And she's the director of the Asian uh, Research Centre for Migration uh, in the Institute of Asian Studies at that university. Her research focuses on refugee, migrant worker and trafficking issues and her work on cross-border issues primarily is concerned with questions of gender, health, education and uh, the protection of the rights of displaced 
persons. She was previously uh, the, in fact, the first chairperson of the Asia Pacific Migration Research Network, and she is a member of the advisory committee of the International Refugee, Refugee Documentation Network at UNHCR in Geneva. So uh, we're very pleased to have this eminent panel with us today. Um, the format for this panel will be... Yes, please. Welcome. <laughs> Yeah, when you speak. Um, so we'll have a slightly different format for this panel. We'd like it to be more interactive and to provide a longer uh, time for Q&A and uh, to take questions from the floor. So I'll just commence with a couple of um, questions to provide a foundation for our discussion before throwing it open to questions from the audience. And if I might start by asking each of our speakers to just provide us with a bit of a snapshot of the refugee protection landscape in your country and perhaps some of the key uh, protection issues that are faced in uh, your country. And perhaps we'll start with Refendi in Indonesia. Uh, OK, thank you. I don't know whether it works. If, let us know it if you works. can't hear. All right. Uh, I'd like to thank first, of course, to the organizers, the Calder Center. It is an honor for me to be here, uh, and especially to, I think, Renata and Andrew. Very nice. I missed the dinner uh, last night. I just arrived from, actually from Geneva, straight from to Sydney. Uh, so I apologize if I'm a bit kind of busy uh, while listening to you uh, this afternoon. Uh, my thank you for the introduction. So just an addition to that, I am now in the second term of my uh, tenure as Indonesia. Uh, commissioner or representative to the ASEAN uh, Commission of Human Rights. The normal name is ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission of Human Rights. Uh, the second uh, tenure that will be the last uh, tenure uh, to, in my function. That means I'm counting the days and the weeks uh, this year uh, to end my term. Uh, I've been there in the commission for the last six years, so at least I've done something which is also uh, related with the discussion, with the topic that we discussed today uh, on the protection of uh, uh, refugees' rights. I'm glad to see some familiar faces here uh, working on the issues. Uh, if you talk the Indonesian context, uh, I think the general one, uh, Indonesia has an experience back in 1979 how to deal and, and receive uh, the, uh, the flux of uh, refugees after the Vietnam War. But that was the only time that Indonesia can give a kind of best practice, I would say. But it's not only Indonesia, but the whole region, uh, uh, where the issue was not really as, as, uh, as, as I would say, uh, a serious concern is much more reflected in the situation like now. Uh, Indonesia is not a part of the uh, state party of the convention. It has been planned in our national human rights action plan in the last three, three phases of the national action human rights action plan, but still we haven't ratified the convention. Uh, despite the fact that Indonesia is state party of all core convention of human rights except the Refugee Convention. So uh, 
the issue of the irregular migrations that will have to be dealt with with the Indonesian government, the officials, the military, the police forces, immigrations, local government as well as central government. So there is a kind of <coughs> of uh, confusion and how to deal with the situation. And I think it has been gone about six or more than six years then the learning process is taking place. So with the, despite the fact that Indonesia is not state party of this convention, but because Indonesian commitment to all uh, human rights obligations, it is reflected uh, in all core convention of human rights that Indonesia is state party of, then Indonesia is trying to, to draft or to make a kind of instrument, a kind of protocol that to be able to deal with the situation, how to protect the people who are seeking refugee status in a bunch of situations mixed with other forms of migration. So and this, this protocol has been started negotiations among the governments involving civil society as well. And I think uh, the momentum of this year expedite the process of toward the concluding of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the protocol. So now this protocol, I think we call it standard operating procedures in terms of uh, dealing with irregular migrations. I, uh, that will be, I hope, by the end of this year, it will be then officially adopted by uh, uh, Indonesian government. And it will have to be then, of course, introduced to the countries of the member state uh, around the region, especially within ASEAN as well as beyond ASEAN. So that's the context of, uh, of uh, uh, the protection. And we still have a lot of problems, particularly in the context of accommodating uh, the children of the irregular migrations. The, the situation of the children uh, is one of the priority issues which raise a concern, children and women, which raise a concern of human rights groups as well as our national human rights institution. Indonesia has three national human rights institutions, not only one. One is very general, a national human rights institution, and then the other two, one is very specific national human rights institution on the protection of the child, and the other one is the national human rights institution on violence against women, on the elimination of violence against women. So these three bodies are very much now trying to work together in terms of how to deal with the women and children in the context of detention or migration. So the topic that was discussed in the previous session was very interesting for me as well when you were talking about immigration, immigration detention and the situation of uh, women and children. So there are still a lot of challenges in terms of addressing these issues, uh, especially in the context where uh, the flux of the people coming again, you know, which is then uh, become the burden as well of the local government. So the division of responsibility of local government and central government is still something that has to be tuned in and that is actually, that's why the protocol is very important in terms of resources as well, how to deal with this kind of situation. I think I stopped there for a while. Thank you. Deepo, if you could tell us about Malaysia. Sure. Um, first of all, can everyone hear me? Okay. 
Um, thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's really be a privilege to be here and be uh, speaking on this panel. Um, so as most of you probably know, Malaysia is not a, a state party to the 1951 Refugee Convention. Um, there's no legal or administrative frameworks, um, framework that deals with refugees. Um, in its absence, refugees are considered illegal immigrants uh, under the Immigration Act. And what that means is that they are subject to penalties, criminal uh, penalties, for, um, for, for not having documentation in Malaysia. And that includes a um, um, uh, prison sentence up to five years, uh, if convicted, um, a fine of up to 10,000 ringgit, uh, and six strokes of the cane. So a whipping sentence is uh, enforced fairly regularly in Malaysia, uh, not so much for refugees. They, they sort of, um, the UNHCR sometimes is able to mitigate, usually is able to mitigate, but uh, under the law, that is certainly the, the sentence for, for many refugees uh, in Malaysia. There are about 153,000 refugees that are registered with the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees in Malaysia. Um, now, while the Malaysian government doesn't have any policies um, and certainly the law, there's no laws on refugees, the Malaysian government has agreed to cooperate uh, to some extent with the United Nations office. And so they recognize through the law enforcement, they recognize um, the UNHCR cards that are given out to recognize refugees. And what that means is that it affords them some sort of um, freedom of movement. Um, they're usually not arrested if they have documentation, although um, sometimes they, are, they have to pay bribes. Um, it also gives them the opportunity to uh, seek employment sometimes, although it's not uh, a legal right, of course, but employers do tend to hire refugees who have a UNHCR documentation. They're also able to access um, public health care, um, which is ordinarily very expensive for foreigners, but they're usually able to get 50% discounts um, in public hospitals. And so that for some sort of uh, additional protection to, to refugees in Malaysia who do possess um, the refugee card. Uh, or the UNHCR card, rather. Um, unlike Indonesia, Malaysia has um, ratified very few of the international um, human rights treaties. We've only ratified the CRC, um, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, as well as CEDAW. Um, there's certainly no talk of ratifying uh, any of the other conventions anytime soon, and certainly not the Refugee Convention. Um, what is, I suppose, also interesting is the government's policies. Now, apart from recognizing um, the UNHCR card to some extent, um, they have a very un unusual, what they call, close one eye policy. Um, in fact, it was the Director General of Immigration Enforcement, I think in 2012 or 2013, that said, in response to the question of what, what is the government's policy on, on refugees, because it's, it's really quite vague, he said, we allow them to be here on humanitarian grounds. Um, we're not sure for how long, um, because it involves matters of national security. Um, but all we can say um, is that we will close one eye on the matter. And uh, that's basically been, I think, the best way to describe it, because there has not, there's never been a consistent policy with regards to refugees. Um, uh, of course, under the law, there's no right to work. There's, there's very limited access to public health care, and um, education is also very problematic. Um, they, they don't have access to public schools, and so it's usually community schools that are run by volunteers without any consistent curriculum, and that's how the majority of children, refugee children in Malaysia um, get their education. Um, I guess another, another 
current point um, that is worth raising at this point is, in terms of the protection of refugees in Malaysia, is that the UNHCR is undergoing a, a very big change in terms of its processing arrangements. And so RSD is no longer being conducted in, in the traditional way. Um, and without getting into too much details, of course, I'm happy to talk about it if anyone's interested. But what, uh, and there are many reasons for this change in, in policy. Um, one of it, of course, being limited funding or reduced uh, reduction in funding, uh, some issues of, of fraud that was happening in Malaysia, and also just the recognition that RSD is no longer able to give the same sort of benefits, um, was, is not able to give the kind of benefits that is worth the amount of resources that it's going into it. So um, certainly there's a lot of reasons for the change in, in policy, but the effect of this new policy um, is that in terms of the implementation, um, a new process is in place called the status verification procedure. Um, with which it sort of effectively eliminates this concept of an asylum seeker. And the first time you approach the UN is the time that you are given a decision on whether or not you are a person of concern. At this point, it's still called asylum seeker, but the standards are a lot higher than just a person seeking asylum. You're effectively doing a mini RSD of sorts. Um, And there's no right to appeal at this point uh, upon a negative decision. And also there's no way to, or at least there's no consistent strategy on how to approach, how refugees can approach the UNHCR directly. And so and the reason I'm bringing this up in the context of a protection framework is because um, what it means is that there's going to be a lot of refugees, uh, Syrians, Rohingyas included, um, who are not vulnerable, uh, because vulnerability is, is one of the priority areas to get interviews, um, who will not be even able to approach the UNHCR, and therefore we're looking at a significant number of refugees who will not even be able to get UNHCR documentation, which puts them at greater risk of arrest and detention. Um, so yeah, that, that is a quick snapshot of what's happening in Malaysia. Thank you. Super. I also would like to thank to Kaudor Center for this uh, excellent gathering of many interesting people. Uh, for the part of Thailand that I would like to share, I think that we have a lot of experiences uh, uh, in the decades, uh, 70s and 80s, we have more than 1 million refugees from Indochinese states, uh, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. Uh, Cambodian is the biggest group uh, we share the border with Cambodia, and the influxes came in hundreds of thousands each time. <clears throat> While the Vietnamese came by boat, at, you know, as boat people, and they go to went to many many countries, and the Lao also share the same border. So uh, during that period, uh, Thailand worked closely with UNHCR, and many uh, shelters were set up along the borders. Uh, First, humanitarian assistance, and later on, uh, some kinds of what we call the tripartite consultation uh, uh, among the countries of origin, which are the three countries, and countries of first asylum in the region and the UN. And with that, it was successfully, as uh, we mentioned this morning, that uh, the comprehensive plan of action was made and durable solutions worked that some were resettled in the third countries and many were sent back voluntarily. And it was a big voluntary repatriation program uh, that was in the 80s and 90s. But the second waves of uh, refugee that we received were from the Myanmar border. 
many many ethnic minorities who were uh, resistant group to the Myanmar government uh, moved into Thailand. This time smaller in number, but still ten hundred of thousand. And for this one, I would like to 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 share more uh, information about the the protection. Uh, Thailand consider that this is a kind of temporary refuge because they escaped from fighting, and that. Uh, one day they would go back home. So we set up what we call temporary shelters along the borders. At the beginning, more than 20, and, and because some shelters were too close to the border and when they were fighting, shelling uh, fell into the camp. So, so the, the UNSCR and the Thai government agreed that we moved on consolidated shelters and now we have nine along the borders. Uh, the, uh, the temporary protection regime that we uh, adopted, uh, we, we continue the non-reful Hmong principle until now because fighting continues. And, and we provided humanitarian relief and assistance with uh, the, the, the cooperation from the UNHCR and many donor countries. We have to, to make it clear here that uh, the assistance to the refugee for shelter, for food, for many things provided by the international donors and mainly from Europe. Uh, the screening process continued. Uh, the first batch were screened in as genuine refugee, but we call them displaced person because Thailand did not sign the convention uh, neither. And uh, but what happened, the temporary shelter exists for more than 25 years. And this is what Geolosher call it, the protracted refugee situation, because many young children were born in a camp and now they have three generations already. And when uh, UNSCR tried to push for a good durable solution, which was resettlement, this was one of the biggest resettlement programs, especially to the United States. But what happened in this protection? In each family, they could not agree. The young people would like to go. The parents and grandparents would like to stay. And with that, fewer people can fill the quota up until now up until now, uh, and, and that created a lot of problem because the principle was the family uh, uh, resettlement. That if, if you go by family or the family reunion uh, principle, but it is the, the opposite, that the family do not reunite in order to move together. That's, that's a problem. And, uh, and the last uh, protection thing that is happening now is about possible repatriation. UNSCR has conducted uh, what, what it's called a profile study. It's a survey to ask the refugee what, what are their preferences, uh, whether to go back or to be resettled or to stay. And uh, only 17 up to 20% of people are interested to return, which is quite low. But they have some conditions that they say that if, if uh, return safety, dignity, and uh, with good uh, employment, uh, uh, those are the, the conditions that they would be more interested to return. <clears throat> and uh, 
a significant proportion would like to stay in Thailand. And this is for their political movement that they would like to continue their fighting. And for that, as Thailand has no policy for local integration, as in many other countries, this is not encouraged by the government. And the resettlement program, which, uh, uh, which was successful and resettled up to 60,000 people already uh, continue, but on individual basis. So that's what the, the, the protection experience that uh, we can mention in the first round. Thank you. Um, before I ask my next question, can I just confirm that everyone can hear? Uh, okay, that's great. Um, so I guess a lot of store is placed in our discourse here in regional cooperation for refugee protection. Um, obviously, we've talked about it quite a lot today, but we've also talked about the fact that um, it's difficult to agree on what content that has. And so I thought it would be interesting to ask each of our speakers to share a bit about what are the perspectives towards uh, perspectives on uh, regional cooperation for refugee protection are uh, in your countries and what the attitudes are towards that, that issue. Yeah. Uh, Indonesia is uh, well, the biggest country in Southeast Asia. 600 million people in the Southeast Asia, in ASEAN. About 250 million are in Indonesia. But it just means that Indonesia considers itself as a big brother in the region. We try to work together the other 10 member states. First it was five and then become 10 in uh, the year uh, 2000s, because they were the state. In this context, the issue of which is, as I said in my earlier intervention, it is most of the times came along in the situation of mixed migration or irregular migration. And then it is also very much related with the issue which is related to migration is the trafficking of persons. So, Indonesia since the beginning believed that dealing or how to find a solution uh, for those challenges or illegal migrations and trafficking in persons, original cooperation is very important. And <clears throat> In this process, what I can say, uh, in the context of trafficking in persons, ASEAN has already uh, a declaration on trafficking in persons back in 2000, 2004. Trafficking in persons, as a pretty woman, woman and children. People smuggling was came later in the context of or in the portfolio of the cooperation among the ten member states. And of course, you might guess that the approach of the handling the issue is a security approach. It is the body, the so-called, uh, the ASEAN Ministerial Meeting on Transnational Crimes, and the senior officer one, who is actually dealing with this. But it was in the last 10 years, I think, <clears throat> when uh, the discourses of human rights came into place in the ASEAN context, started 
1993, when uh, the ASEAN Foreign Minister, after the World Conference of Human Rights, already made a declaration that they are going to create a human rights mechanisms. And it took about 16 years to be able to have one. It was in 2009. That was the first time when I was part of the process. So the discourses of human rights goes along with the rights of the children and women, which was already earlier recognized by the ASEAN of the state. Because all tenants of state are state party of this convention. So the women and children's rights in the beginning, and then later on in 2009, came the body which is called ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission of Human Rights. And in 2012, it has adopted the Declaration of Human Rights for the ASEAN region. So where all 10 ASEAN member states, they don't say that they can only talk about children's rights, women's rights, but we can talk about civil politic rights, economic and social rights of all rights. All, all human beings. Religious right is also part of the of the of the protection norms in the ASEAN Declaration. So in this process, then, the notion of human rights becoming much stronger and stronger in the context of the security people working. So the last effort that I have done as an ICHER is actually then trying to work in tandem and in a close consultation with the people from the security on how to deal with this issue of protection of human rights by handling and, and combating the trafficking of persons. Which then, you know, because the Andaman crisis, you know, there is also a kind of moment, momentum, I would say a good momentum, where the regional cooperation is very important. Because at that time, I cannot afford not to say this thing, because this is so important. Uh, we were talking about solidarity. People was, was asking in May, what's ASEAN response on the situation of the Andaman crisis? And you see the first weeks of the response is going away of the boat people. But then it was then led, even Indonesian, Indonesian Navy was also going away some of the of the poll. But it counted in matters of days that this policy has been strengthened up. No, we are not going to throw that away. We have the, the obligation to protect this people. So then Indonesia together with Malaysia and with Thailand trying to sit down together, you know, first with the three countries, and it was first led with the meeting in Thailand in Bangkok. But later on this issue was brought up to the ASEAN. So that's why I say, this is the solidarity of ASEAN. That the issue will have to be then taken up by ASEAN. And that's why there was an emergency meeting of the ASEAN Minister meeting in July that discussed about this people's smuggling, discussed about how to deal with this, and discussed about engaging other bodies within ASEAN, which is related or it has to be work as well on the protection of the rights of the people. So, if you look at the chair statement of the ASEAN Ministerial Meeting, you see that there is a new scope of the portfolio of trust on the crime that people smuggling should be also part 
of the South Pacific. The whole questions should be addressed uh, by South Pacific together with our the center of the meeting of taxes of crime. So that's the, that's the you know, this uh, uh, body of the under the minister level. So they, the, they were taxed by the minister to pick up people's money. That was, I think, the first time that it was written in a statement that yes, people's money will have to be built seriously. And together with other uh, bodies dealing directly or indirectly with uh, rights of the children in the situation of traffic, in the situation of smuggle, you know, these are the ASEAN Commission on the Children and the ASEAN International Commission of Human Rights, and there is another body that's called ASEAN Committee on the Rights of Migrant Workers. So these bodies will have to work together in the so-called task force. The operative paragraph of that chat statement actually instructed the Sub-TC should create a task force that will bring along you know, these bodies to work and to deal how to deal with this uh, people or crisis like that. So that's how Indonesia sees the importance of uh, cooperation in the region. In addition, of course, to the Bali process that we have, which exists in 2002 already, you know, and 2014 and 2011, there was already a framework non-binding framework of cooperation, but still, he was not able to respond to the crisis as it was in the Andaman crisis. Yeah? So, this, I think, a process of momentum which is very important to look at, because then, the, uh, 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 it is at the same time as well, the ASEAN is going to the next stage of cooperation, Tomorrow, for the day after tomorrow, the ASEAN is going to adopt the ASEAN Convention on the Trafficking in Person. Which means it's going to be a legally binding instrument that will have to regulate how ASEAN deals with trafficking persons. Of course, bearing in mind, this also must be related with other forms of migration. I think I stopped that for a while. I don't want to talk, Sure. Um, I guess I'll start with um, just briefly mentioning the CPA. It's been mentioned many times today. Uh, and it was before my time, so I'm certainly not qualified to speak on it. But uh, the CPA was really premised on this idea of, um, of resettlement as, as the ultimate solution. And because of the overwhelming uh, commitment by, by Western countries to resettle high numbers of refugees, um, that was one of the reasons why it was so successful. And when we're talking about a regional solution, I think the only problem with uh, looking at CPA as a model is that uh, resettlement is, is not the option that, that it was uh, back then, um, especially with the, the changes in, in migration patterns and the, the numbers of refugees in, in the Middle East. Um, that is, it's, just, it's a framework that is going to be very hard to, to replicate. But that being said, I think it's a great example of um, how a regional framework can work if there is um, an alignment of interest between you know, all, all the people who are involved in it. Um, so in terms of perceptions of um, regional response or regional framework, of course, when the uh, Andaman Sea crisis happened, um, Malaysia's position was and always has been, this is not our problem. Uh, why are we having to take, a disproportionate, take on a disproportionate burden 
um, to take in people uh, that are being you know, persecuted elsewhere. Uh, and that's generally the narrative. And so the Prime Minister had publicly said many times, he had stressed the importance of having a regional response. Um, so that has always been um, you know, a, a certainly one of the, if not the only way to move forward uh, in a crisis like this. Um, I guess another, uh, another point that follows from that is, you know, I, I don't have the answer, but of course, what's a, what's a perfect regional uh, framework. But some of the key elements, as has been mentioned many times today, would be having appropriate search and rescue mechanisms um, or search and rescue framework, having proper reception facilities, processing arrangements, um, uh, providing humanitarian aid, a family reunification, addressing and combating human trafficking. There's so many different elements to what, and of course addressing root causes. Um, There's so many different elements to what can make a regional, or what should um, be in a regional framework. Um, but at least in, in my readings of um, you know, newspaper articles that, that talk about this idea of a regional framework, it hasn't really been had, the discussion hasn't been really focused on what are the problems, specific problems or issues that each country is facing in, in respect of the, the refugee populations in that country. And so before we can talk about having a regional framework, we need to be able to address the specific concerns of each country, which vary. Um, for example, in Malaysia, you know, one of the big issues that always comes up, and certainly this is, is something that, that most countries share, is the pull factor. Um, if we have um, you know, a system or any, any refugee protection in the country, then we will encourage more and more people to come to Malaysia. Um, so we need to be able to address that. And that, of course, links to you know, burden sharing. Who is responsible for what? Um, it's also been viewed traditionally as... Um, the role of the international community to, to deal with this issue. Uh, it's not a Malaysian issue. Um, and of course, another issue that comes up is the financial burden. Um, if we take in refugees, it's, we are unable to, um, especially with the numbers of refugees that come to Malaysia, we are unable to support them. We simply don't have the money to do so. And so, I guess if you're looking at some sort of um, ways forward, and this term political will has been thrown around um, a lot, and of course, it's, it's extremely important. Um, but how do we get political will in, in a region that has never prioritized human rights? Uh, it's certainly not a discussion we can meaningfully have with the government to say you, you need to prioritize human rights and therefore you need to do this. It, it's, at least from my limited experience, it's, very difficult. it's a very difficult argument to win. And so looking at what are the priorities of the country, um, for example, an economic argument, and that's certainly a conversation that is ha that's happening in Malaysia that uh, the UNHCR is uh, spearheading, this labor mo mobility scheme. Um, but we need to have evidence-based arguments um, and advocacy to support why it's a good idea. In Malaysia, for example, and, and this may be different in Indonesia and Thailand, but Mal Malaysia is a, a perfect country um, based on its low employment rates, uh, the fact that we rely so heavily on foreign workers to incorporate um, refugees into the workforce. And so if you're looking at a regional burden sharing arrangement, figuring out which country can, can provide what resource and which country is able to do what would certainly be helpful. Um, uh, for example, Australia, um, if Australia is somehow able to support some sort of, uh, in terms of finances for, for development or labor mobility schemes in this region, it would certainly help in terms of refugee flows as well, because many people, refugees wouldn't leave Malaysia. Um, if they were able to get access to their rights in the country. Um, and so 
I guess um, you know one of the points that I was hoping to make for this particular question is that, and I was talking to Tamara about this uh, during lunch, is if we can all sort of agree on what what is the lowest hanging fruit. You know, what, what can we can we start with um, for a regional arrangement? What can we all agree on based on our capacity um, and based on a burden uh, sharing arrangement that works uh, based on our resources? I think that would be a good uh, starting point. Um, yeah, I think I'll end there for now. Thank you. I'd like to address the issue of challenges to protection. Uh, uh, Guy mentioned about the, the migration refugee nexus, and, and more and more we can see what we, UNSCR call the mixed flows, that people who are moving around are not genuine refugee only, but there are people who, who would like to, to, to move for economic opportunities and for other reasons. And with that, it, it is a challenge that if you use the uh, refugee convention in order to protect people who are moving, and among those people who are moving, they are of different nature. Uh, that is the, the, the biggest challenge now. I would like to raise the issue of the Rohingya in the, in the Andaman crisis, that those people who arrived at, from the beginning, uh, it is a mix of those who were uh, former refugee and sent back from Myanmar to Bangladesh, and they were uh, they were put in in Cox Bazar with uh, some shelter, but they have nothing to do there, no job, and then they decide to 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 go again. But this time they go by sea, so they take the boat and they go as far as Malaysia, and 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 later on, more people who are in Myanmar uh, decided to leave. Some for economic reasons, because uh, they were, it's a mix, you see, they were discriminated, uh, racial discriminated uh, as, as Rohingya among the Arakan, uh, in Arakan state. The Myanmar policy was to Arakanize the state, that Arakan people will be here and non-Arakan people are not welcome. So those people who were strong traders and strong uh, farm workers were, were not offered a job. And, and with that, they tried to look for a job somewhere else. So they decided to go. So it's mixed, you see? The reasons that they, they uh, the root causes that drove them to, to leave their place of origin or second place of origin are mixed, and, and finally they move to, to, to the, <clears throat> the coastal area of Thailand, Malaysia, and finally even in Aceh of Indonesia. And when, when those people came, uh, they, they were treated as illegal migrants according to the immigration law. So they were put in the detention center. And, and when more and more uh, waves arrived, then the government instructed the Navy to tow away, or at least not to not allow them to enter the, the, the national water. And with that, when it became a crisis uh, early this year, people start to, to raise uh, that in this mixed flow, there are three, at least three kinds of three groups of people. One is illegal immigrants or irregular arrivals. Second, uh, refugees. And third, trafficked victims, because in the crisis we found that there were mass graves of people who died, the Rohingya who died in Thailand near the border and also died in Malaysia. And those people died because they were kept in kind of uh, 
like a prison, and and people who are involved in the trafficking ring demand ransom from the relatives of those people who are still in 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 Rakhine State to to send money, quite big amount uh, in Thai baht. It is up to sixty thousand baht. So let's say three uh, to US dollars approximately. Uh, so that those people can be facilitated to go further to Malaysia. That's why the camps are very near to the border. But if the relatives did not send the money to the trafficker, then those people will be kept and starving and finally died. So with that, the third category of people who move from uh, among the Rohingya are the victims of trafficking. And now we need to bring in more laws both international laws like the uh, transnational organized crime with the protocol on human smuggling and human trafficking into consideration and including the national law on on anti-trafficking. Most recently in Thailand, uh, the police arrested up to uh, 87 persons involved in the trafficking. Uh, we don't know. I, I don't know the number, exact number of people who were screened as victims of trafficking, but they were uh, uh, they were processed to the shelter in the south of Thailand. And among the 87 persons arrested, they are mainly the local government people, uh, the people from the municipality, people from the province, and many of them are Muslim themselves. So it is a Muslim network who facilitated and who exploited from those Rohingya people who are also Muslim. And with that, uh, some court trials have been done. Uh, One case that was released, the head of the uh, uh, Songkhla province um, municipality was sentenced to long-term jail. And, 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 and with that attempt to protect the, the Rohingya who are uh, the refugee, uh, the victims of trafficking, uh, what happened? This is more or less like the case of the Australian this morning. The chief police who did the case, who arrested up to that 87 people, received a lot of threats and finally just last week, he resigned from his post, from being police, because he said he were not yet adequately protected by the government for what he has done in order to protect those people. It is like the Navy who, who take the risk by enforcing the law. So I would say that uh, this challenge to the protection uh, is now more and more obvious. What I would like to conclude now is that uh, it seems that security will overrule the protection mandate of people who are moving because uh, refugees and other mobile people will be conceived as threats to national security. Second, more internally, displaced persons will, will appear in the region because conflicts continue. Most recently, last two weeks, there were fighting in Chan State, heavy fightings and a lot of casualties. And those people are moving within its own state, like the Kashin. So they are IDPs, 
and with IDPs, UNHCR has limited role to, to do. It must be ICRC, and ICRC cannot do a lot in each country. <coughs> and so I would see that the protection of refugee will be limited, and the number of IDP will increase. And the last point that I would like to, to, to say is about the regional solidarity. I'm not as optimistic as Rafendi. Uh, I can see the, the principle of non-interference as the biggest uh, overruling that will make the ASEAN let each country continue to do what they would like to do in terms of refugee rather than adopting a kind of regional uh, decision and make it real solidarity. Thank you. Thank you, Sipan. Um, I'd like to now throw it open uh, for audience questions. So if anyone has a question, just raise your hand and roving Mike will come to you. There's Paul Power in the Refugee Council. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask a question of Rafendi and Deepa about um, immigration detention. And thank you for your comments, Supang, about uh, immigration detention. Um, answered the question I was going to ask all three of you in advance. Um, but there's, amongst the refugee communities in Australia who have relatives and friends in Southeast Asia, there is a lot of concern about what's happening um, to people who are being picked up and detained um, in all three countries. And I'm thinking in Thailand's case, in the case of urban refugees in Bangkok, um, uh, in Malaysia, um, asylum seekers you know, who are from countries other than Burma, um, and nearly everyone in, in the case of Indonesia. And in fact, um, Unita from Suwaka was here recently and, and reporting on the phenomenon of people booking themselves into detention centres in Indonesia as a, as a way of getting uh, um, a place to stay and, and the possibility of, of uh, assistance um, through IOM. Um, and also food. So I'm, I'm interested in your, uh, or particularly uh, Rafendi uh, and Deepa, your perspectives on detention um, in your countries at the moment. And um, I don't know, it would just seem to, yeah, and I, I realise how hypocritical this is coming from someone from Australia, but it would seem that in, in Southeast Asia, um, that uh, from the refugee protection perspective, what we're hearing from refugee communities here is that this is probably the number one issue, um, uh, you know, to sort of shift, a, um, to try to begin to shift government thinking about the overuse of detention. You go first. Um, well, first of all, um, it's not just non-Burmese in detention. It's also it's also Burmese. It's any um, anyone who doesn't have UNHCR document, and even those who have UNHCR documentation. Um, many of them are arrested, detained, um, and then subsequently released only when the UNHCR goes into the detention center after quite a prolonged process of back and forth with uh, the immigration department to release them. Um, but I think your, your point on, on non-Burmese is particularly important because since December 2013, and, and this, um, you know, many of you might be familiar with this or aware of this, but since December 2013, um, non-Burmese were not being released from detention centers in the way that they used to be able to be released through the UNHCR. Um, when the UNHCR has questioned the immigration authorities for the reason for this, they have not been able to give 
a reason. Um, and so what has happened is that um, Afghan men, Iranians, um, Iraqis, Sri Lankans, um, many of them have been in detention for more than a year, um, uh, some for months. The UNHCR, I think sometime in July, was able to release um, women and children from detention centers. But um, it was speculated, and of course there's really no confirmation about this, but December 2013 was when um, Scott Morrison paid a visit to Malaysia. Um, and we're really not sure whether one has anything to do with another. Um, I certainly won't imply that. But um, there's definitely some speculation that um, that might have something to do with it. But this is a policy that is, that is ongoing and obviously very problematic. Um, even the UNHCR is not able to get information um, on this. Um, on, on the point on, on people putting themselves in detention in, in Indonesia, um, I just wanted to bring it up uh, in the context of Malaysia as well because that is one of the three pathways now that the, UNH, um, that the UNHCR is going to be able to uh, is going to register refugees under this new process. It is if you're a vulnerable refugee, you get access to UNHCR interviews. Um, if you've been referred to by NGOs, um, or CB, well, only referred to by NGOs, um, and if you are being released from detention, you kind of fall under this pool of vulnerable or prioritized refugees. Um, and so one of the concerns that we have in this, you know, no reason to believe that it has already happened, but certainly one of the concerns that we have is that once um, this policy becomes public knowledge, um, that many refugees might put themselves in detention as well as having be, being one of the only access points to UNHCR. Um, so certainly it's, it's very problematic. Detention has always been very problematic in Malaysia. We've had thousands of people, in refugees in detention. Um, I think last year there were up to 1,000 children in detention. Um, there are some positive developments in terms of uh, children in, in detention, and particularly unaccompanied minors, in terms of dialogue with the government. Um, but it's still in the process, and so nothing much to report there. But as a signatory to the CRC, we, uh, the government has been able to be uh, more willing to dialogue on that issue. Thank you. If I can add something on that, the Indonesian contact is not as, I think, less, less complicated than in Malaysia in terms of numbers. But still, uh, the same issue, uh, lack of the facilities for the center, so in some area, there's, especially in Aceh, they're still living in, the, in the public places like a, a sport hall or a community center, which is converted to become the center for uh, uh, detention center for immigration. So uh, a lot of things still have to be done even to, to provide the infrastructure for uh, local government who are affected by, by, uh, by these flux of the people. And initially they were welcomed, of course, by the people themselves. But of course, it cannot be sustained. It is not a sustainable uh, solution for that. You know, you need as well uh, a solution, uh, uh, another temporary solution. And I hope it's not going to be 25 years temporary shelters like the situation in, in Thailand, but uh, this is still something that, uh, that needs to be, to be worked out. And uh, that's why the, uh, the, the uh, protocol or the operating, standard operating procedure is very important in really looking at uh, delineating the responsibility of the local government and the central government uh, in, in providing protection as well as uh, 
have uh, other needs uh, of the uh, uh, the people uh, uh, that are seeking a protection. And the priority, as I said earlier in my present, uh, presentation, is in the situation of women and children. The number is not like thousands, but it is less than thousands for the children, but still it is a concern uh, which already attracted the attention of the three national commissions that I mentioned. So it is still a process in working for us. It is good if this kind of information can be shared directly to the concern coming from the people who are here and their family is still there. If there is any communication, maybe maybe that will help uh, ease uh, 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 when you get more information about to which direction they are going. I think it will it will it will give you uh, a more comfortable feeling for the concerns uh, coming from the uh, refugee community here in Australia. So I think that's the thing that maybe can be done in, to address these issues. Another question? No, I'm also from the Refugee Council, so sorry to hog the floor. Um, we've talked a lot today about the comprehensive plan of action and the lessons that offers us today for a, a as a framework for regional cooperation. Uh, but I imagine that the way Australia's behaved in the last few years has really destroyed a lot of the potential we would have had to play the same kind of leadership role today that we did back under that plan. So I'd be interested to hear from the panel about your ideas for the most constructive way Australia could enter into these kinds of conversations about regional cooperation without it coming across as, as here's Australia again marching in and trying to tell the region what it should do uh, or more uh, looking towards a way that we could engage that in a manner that would uh, be seen as by countries in Asia as constructive rather than Australia again trying to impose its, its will on others. Does anyone have a perspective that you want to? Supang, go ahead. I, I found the new comprehensive plan of action too optimistic <laughs> in the current context. Uh, if we think about Syria, for example, <laughs> how we can demand people to, to do the, what they call the compensation scheme, that's uh, really a challenge. But looking into the the, the Asian, Asia Pacific uh, context, especially for the in Thailand and Myanmar, uh, I can see some possibility, but it can be in a different way. Uh, we can think about the root causes of displacement, and in this consideration, uh, in the past, we say that to address the root causes of the conflict, we should try to uh, ameliorate, to make that uh, the conflict between the minority groups and the governments uh, uh, diminished. And with that, we also think that the, the Myanmar government, uh, who is the, a part of the origin of the root cause, should be assisted. It's the other way around. Should be assisted. Development aid should go to Myanmar so that the country will develop. And in that development, uh, uh, the, the, the conflict should be uh, uh, minimal. Uh, I look at that and I found that it is not, not real because uh, now many countries 
poor into Myanmar with a lot of development aids. But most of the development aids will go to Myanmar region. And when you look at the, the, the states of the minorities, like current state, Rakhine state, uh, Kashin, Oshan, the development aids will not go or go very minimal. And with that, uh, the minority people will continue, continue to be minority. So, so I don't, I don't, I think that if there are some kinds of uh, thinking about a new comprehensive plan of action, especially for, for, for this particular uh, refugee group uh, from Myanmar, we can think about a, a more even distribution of AIDS that can uh, make sure that uh, minorities who are, uh, who are disprivileged can have access to this aid and that they can improve or develop their own region and their own states to the level that they do not need to, to, to fight and to live anymore. Uh, comprehensive plan of actions. When you talk about plan of actions, then you talk about which body you're talking about, the comprehensive. In the context of this region, I think we have this Bali process. And we also have this ASEAN. Right? So, Bali process involves more countries than the 10 member states. In the Bali process, then you can also discuss about root causes, uh, because then the situation of Rohingya is very much related to the situation in Bangladesh. So, Bangladesh is beyond ASEAN. ASEAN, I cannot imagine now that ASEAN as a group come to negotiate with Bangladesh to solve the problem also of Rohingya as part of the ASEAN, right? But it can be brought in the context of Bali process. That might be more feasible. So I am more optimistic, probably, in the context of regional, regional cooperation, uh, because you see things moving in progress. You don't see it in, in the media, but you see if you use an extra binocular, then you see there are things which is moving in progress. Even in my explanation before, ASEAN initially cannot respond to the Andaman crisis. You know? But because of some movement from some member states, an initiative from member states, then it takes up the responsibilities of ASEAN. This is an ASEAN issue. Yeah? Although they don't, they don't want to call it a human rights crisis, it is recognized as security and humanitarian crisis. So, but humanitarian in practice is about human rights, right? But human rights is too political, that's why it wasn't there. When the crisis took place, I took initiative in my commission to table this issue, despite the fact that the commission doesn't have a power to discuss country situation. But because this is something a cross-border issue, I brought it into attention to, to the commission. Although the country in question will have to agree first whether they are going to be, to be discussed on the table. So I didn't get the agreement. But they agreed to discuss in the informal setting. So we did discuss. We did discuss what are the challenges of Myanmar. How Myanmar see the problems of Rohingya. What are the challenges they have? It's shared by the whole 10 member countries. It is in the informal setting. But this is what I'm saying, moving forward 
to really your concern is about not interference, right? Slowly, in practice, people, I mean, this 10 member state will learn that non-interference is, should not be, it is a legitimate reason for the existence of intergovernmental organization, but it should not stop us to work together in terms of solving the problems that has a nature of a cross-border situation, right? That's why in that context, uh, going back to the plan of action, it is interesting to look at the process of Bali process. Now they're going to have a meeting in February again after the relation is a bit tense between the co-chair and the chair in Indonesia and Australia. But now with the new government, there is a new hope. At least there is a new hope that when there's going to be a meeting of ministerial meeting in February in 2016 and wave towards that, there's something concrete on the element of plan of action can be inserted. And that is goes along as well with the adoption of the ASEAN Convention on Trafficking in Person. Because the convention will be there, but it will also adopt the so-called ASEAN Plan of Action on the trafficking in persons and human rights. Right? So these are the things that I see that as an opportunity. As an opportunity in the context of regional cooperation. I don't know whether I convince you. <laughs> right reply. We have time for one more question. So, oh, sorry. Oh, yes, sorry. Go ahead. Um, sorry, just to quickly um, just add a couple of uh, very quick points uh, to your question, and I completely uh, agree with uh, Professor Supang. Um, I think Australia certainly you know, has a credibility issue in terms of you know, trying to be part of a regional process. Um, but as I mentioned before, I think one of the ways that uh, Australia can support the process would be through funding and um, funding capacity building activities in the region, uh, in Malaysia and Thailand, Singapore. Um, and this is something that civil society, I think we can do better uh, in terms of coordinating with each other, sharing best practices, um, especially the lessons learned, advocacy strategies that could work in our country. So coordination certainly helps with you know, Australian civil society. Um, and in terms of, of um, funding for development, as Professor Supang said, I agree that it, you know, of course funding through the government, the Myanmar government, is, is, could be very problematic. And so looking at funding in a way that um, is able to reach the, the areas that it needs to reach and also in a more holistic way, um, not just focusing in an area that where, where Rohingyas live for, live, for example, because the Arakan population um, in the other parts of Rakhine State um, also suffers human rights violations and you know, any development projects need to be balanced um, in, that, in that sense. And one last question, Graham, from Amnesty. It's great to hear from all of you. And I just want to... Um, get a little bit more perspective from you, I guess, around the Rohingya and particularly because we've spoken a lot about resettlement as a durable solution and yet you have a situation where Bangladesh won't allow any resettlement of Rohingya, uh, UNHCR can't even access the Rohingya in Thailand, uh, in Indonesia where you see no Rohingya being resettled out of Indonesia and yet we've got the group in Aceh where we're told 12 months there has to be some sort of solution for them and only small numbers being resettled out of Malaysia uh, but 
but only by the US and Australia not taking any role in terms of resettling Rohingya in the region. So in terms of, of that durable solution, it, it doesn't really seem to be on the table. And I'm just wondering if you think that's something that really needs a lot more advocacy if we are going to be talking about a, a, a new CPA and, and resettlement as being part of it. If it's not there for the Rohingya, then I think we've got a real problem. So I'm, I'm just very interested to get your perspectives around where you think resettlement will play a role in the region and particularly for the Rohingya people. I consider this as both a challenge and, and a hope. A challenge, uh, as we have already discussed, uh, that that uh, it is quite difficult to to, to agree on on the Rohingya problem. And uh, although in Thailand, UNHCR and the Thailand National Human Rights Commission are eyewitnessing the the screening process, uh, they are there. But but we still do not know how many were screened as refugee, but we know how many were screened as victims of human trafficking. Uh, and, and the majority are, uh, are illegal immigrants. So uh, it, it will be difficult, if, if you can recall, after ASEAN moved in order to, to, to solve the problem together, uh, countries like Philippines propose that they can accept 200 Rohingya to resettle in their country and some other uh, generous offers like that. But, but uh, I don't know whether we need to ask whether the, the Rohingya would like to apply for resettlement in Philippines or not, right? <laughs> Although the, the country may be generous uh, to offer. Uh, so, so that's that's uh, still still uh, a challenge, but but the hope is that we also have some cooperation from Myanmar. After ASEAN discussed with Myanmar, not Bangladesh, Myanmar agreed that Myanmar government will oversee strictly oversee the departure of people from Rakhine State. It, it won't be that freely that any fishing boat can convert it into can be converted into a vessel and then carry 200 people uh, into the, the big sea. And Myanmar government also uh, tried to include the Rohingyas in the previous uh, census population census, uh, but the Rohingya denied to be included. Because in the census, uh, the the enumerator will ask and and ask the Rohingya whether they will accept to be enumerated as Bengali, but the Rohingya refused. They said, "If you enumerate us, it must be as Rohingya." But Rohingya is not a category a category that will be included. So more than 100 people in Rakhine State only were not enumerated. And they are the Rohingya. So I think that ASEAN, ASEAN should negotiate and should talk to the Rohingya too. That why don't you be called <laughs> Bengali, and with that you become uh, citizenship, right? And then uh, many more uh, uh, discrimination will 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 this uh, be reduced. And and so 
I can see some hopes and some challenges for that. Um, so I suppose just to um, prove your point on the difficulty of um, you know, resettlement as an option, um, the Rohingyas that, were, that arrived in Malaysia during the, the Andaman port crisis, um, they are still being held in detention. And the reason that we uh, heard was because the Malaysian government is sort of keeping to, to what they said in the original the Bangkok declaration, that only when they get the commitment of the international community to resettle the Rohingya will they be released. So certainly resettlement is very problematic. Um, you know, Rohingyas for, for, for I suppose, you know, reasons relating to the level of literacy, education perhaps, um, are often not considered to be favorites in terms of uh, you know, resettlement countries. Um, and also, interestingly, we were having this conversation earlier um, with Davina. Many times Rohingyas don't want to be resettled, at least in Malaysia. Uh, when you ask many people, uh, many Rohingya com community members, they, 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 are, they want to stay in Malaysia. It's certainly not because the rights that they have in Malaysia are extensive. It's better than the rights they receive at home. But they have family networks. Um, they speak the local language. Many have been there for generations. Um, and, but also one of the things that came up was this idea that maybe they don't, they don't know any better. They don't really understand this concept of having rights and wanting to pursue these rights in other countries that might be able to better give it to them. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly that, that is a problem. Um, and in Malaysia, one option that has been pursued in the past was local integration for specifically for, for Rohingyas. Um, there was an attempt, at least the beginnings of an attempt, to issue work permits to, to Rohingyas back in 2008, but that had to be dropped because of allegations of fraud and corruption. But the Rohingyas were considered to be amongst all the other refugee groups most capable of local integration for those reasons that I mentioned, ability to speak local language, they've been here. Uh, many of them fill in um, labor needs of, of the country. They work in the you know, three, three Ds, as, as, as they were called, uh, dirty, dangerous, and demeaning jobs that we need foreign labor for. And we have been bringing people from Bangladesh for, for many years. And so in all those respects, they, they sort of, for local integration, it, it makes sense to, to include them. Um, but it hasn't quite happened just yet. And I, I certainly you know, I have to say that this is quite unique to Malaysia. I don't, I don't know if it applies to uh, the other countries in which Rohingyas are in. So resettlement would definitely have to be an option for, for, for the most part. In addition to what you say, now the, the flux of the Rohingya people came to Indonesia. It was not the first time. Uh, three years ago, it also happened. About more than 100 or 200 stranded people in the in in island of Aceh, in the shore of Aceh. And what happened to those people? In the course of time, the number is decreased. In one or another way, they find a way to go somewhere else. And some says that they go to Malaysia. So the direction is Malaysia. So that's why it's very interesting to see that uh, a lot of People who identify themselves as Rohingya, their choice is to go direction is Malaysia, not anywhere else. So I don't know what what will be the global solution in that kind of situation. You know? But the first thing to do is, of course, uh, what has been said by Supang, that's addressing that no more boats are coming. That's very important to get a cooperation of Myanmar government. That's good because that's true ASEAN as well. That. Uh, and Myanmar agreed to really look at the, 
at the security uh, at the border, not to allow you know extra alert about about any boat that can be converted to become boat people, uh, to transport the people. That's one. The root causes are quite problematic. Even the new government now, the Aung Suu Kyi, who win the election, doesn't recognize the term Rohingya. They, they recognize Bengali. So that's another issue, right? So first of all, first, first I think the immediate issue that has to be addressed is to stop the flow of the boat who might be coming to the region. That's one. The second is the process of the determination of the status. Who are the refugee status? Who are potentially asylum seekers? Who are not? Who are? Who are which one are the uh, trafficking? So status determination is very important in the process of this one year. Then you can talk about durable solution for the people who are stranded now in the Andaman crisis, which is more or less about uh, 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 more than thousands of people. So I think that's the only thing I can say, right? <laughs> more than that, I don't know. But uh, uh, again, through uh, uh, the fact that the all ASEAN uh, institutions in charge on this issue are more aware, in setting up the norms, trying to also create the, the institutions and trying to more to be more more synergy in the in the in the cooperation. These are the things that we have to do. Few few weeks ago, ICER organized the first annual meeting with the senior official meeting on transnational crimes in fighting the ASEAN Committee on Women and Children, in fighting ASEAN Committee on Women, in fighting the ASEAN Ministerial Meeting on Social Welfare Development, because they are the one who's dealing with the situation of uh, providing shelter and everything for the refugees. You know? So we sit down together, and we, we, we're trying to, uh, the outcome of that meeting is there will be an annual meeting, annual meeting to look at the progress. In between the program, we look at how to fill the cooperations among these bodies to really address those kind of issues. Thank Optimistic you. Views. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, we have to uh, draw this session to a close as we've run out of time. Uh, but uh, we'd really like to thank our panel. It's been a fascinating discussion. And as Deepa rightly pointed out, if, if you, we do want to promote regional cooperation for refugee protection in, in this region, we need to understand, uh, it's vital to understand the, the concerns and the refugee protection landscape in countries of the region. And, and you've really shared with us fascinating insights uh, in that regard. So please join me in thanking our panel. Thank you.